I sort of see philanthropy as the lab, right? Because, you know, it's very hard for government to try new things because if they don't work, they get criticized for wasting money and all of that. And frankly, I just don't think the government is that creative. They have massive resources from our our tax, but uh, they're not that creative. So I really see philanthropy as the risk-taking piece Mm -hmm. of trying to make change. And if we'd hit those, there would have been an explosion. We would have died, obviously. Scholarship should cultivate the virtues. Worry more about, am I searching for what I should be doing next in the world? Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Voices of Santa Clara podcast. I'm your host, Gavin Cosgrave, and I'm super excited to bring you this conversation today with uh, the board chairman, John M. Sobrato. We recorded this conversation in February, so this was before all the pandemic madness, as you'll realize, but uh, John had a lot of amazing things to say. Every Santa Clara student has heard the name Sobrato, likely from one of the first moments they stepped onto campus. There's the Abbey Sobrato Mall, the Sobrato Residential Learning Community, the Sobrato Technology Center, and the library, and perhaps most notably the new Sobrato Center for Discovery and Innovation, which is Santa Clara's ambitious $270 million new STEM center that's currently under construction. Um, John M. Sobrato's father, John A. Sobrato, uh, attended Santa Clara, as did most to the family. Um, and John A. Sobrato was the original developer who kind of built the family's real estate empire and is currently valued at $6.8 billion, making him around uh, number 115 on the list of the richest people in the United States. So uh, his son is John M. Sobrato, who is our guest today. He's the chair of the board of trustees at Santa Clara and also chairman of the Sobrato organization. Um, and there's a couple different parts of the Sobrato organization that we're going to cover in this conversation, so I'll just lay them out here real quick. The first and the largest component is the real estate business, which has developed over 21 million square feet of office, research and development, and multifamily complexes since the 1960s. A few of the company's notable office buildings include the former Apple campus headquarters, the ServiceNow headquarters, and office buildings for Amazon, Google, Netflix, Facebook, Pinterest, NVIDIA, and more. This enormous success has fueled the philanthropy arm of the business, Sobrato Philanthropies, which has given more than $552 million to a bunch of different causes, mostly centering around education, career pathways, and essential human services in Silicon Valley. Every year since 2013, the Sobrato family has been named number one or two of the most generous corporations in Silicon Valley by the Silicon Valley Business Journal, ahead of major tech companies, and then additionally, both John A. and John M. Sobrato and their spouses have taken the giving pledge and stated that 100% of their wealth will go to the family foundation. The third area of the business is Sobrato Capital, an investment arm which manages money in private and public companies. So in this conversation, we touch on the evolving business model of Santa Clara and why so many colleges are unsustainable, the ethics of profit maximization in investing, lessons from the Sobrato family business, working through challenges on the Santa Clara Board of Trustees, the role of philanthropy versus government, which was the clip you heard at the beginning, and John has a lot of really interesting stuff to say around that, and then also what John is most proud of in his career. So I'm super excited to bring you this conversation, and please enjoy. 
John Sprata. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. Yeah. So to start out, you've kind of seen Santa Clara from many different angles now, right? With your your father went to Santa Clara, your uh, sons went to Santa Clara, you went to Santa Clara, and now in your position on the board, you've kind of seen this university from so many different perspectives. So what have you learned about it? Or is there anything you appreciate now that you didn't before as a student? Yeah, I would say, you know, as I progressed from a student at Santa Clara to being a father of uh, two boys that graduated from here to now, you know, first being on the board of trustees and now chairing the board is just how unsustainable the business model of higher education is. You know, it's not really a Santa Clara phenomenon, but it certainly affects Santa Clara because we're no different than any other institution of higher learning. Um, Affordability and accessibility is a big deal and a real challenge. Even, let's say there's probably a handful, maybe it's a dozen or so, maybe a few more universities that have endowments big enough Mm -hmm. that they can accept need blind. And if you're you're qualified to get in and are admitted, they figure out a way to pay. So they would be affordable, but they're really not accessible because those same universities, whether it's Stanford or Harvard or even now Berkeley, only accept, you know, one or two, three, four percent of the students. So they're not accessible. They're affordable, but they're not accessible. Then you have, you know, schools that that uh, uh, are able to sort of accept most that apply, but, you know, they don't have the financial resources to make Mm -hmm. them affordable. Mm -hmm. And it's a real challenge. I was looking at statistics, some statistics online, and it depends on which ones you look at and how they calculate it. But basically, they're all pretty consistent with sort of this message, which if you go back to the cost of a year of higher education, uh, college education, whether it's at private, publics, if you average the whole thing, it amounted to about 20% of the median income. So a year of college was equal to 20% of one's median income. And that was something that, you know, if you planned ahead, you could save for. Today, it's well over 50%. And so if you do the math, I think what I read is the cost of a college education has gone up eight times faster than the median income. And, uh, and thus, you know, with all the you read about the, the student loans and the student debt that students are taking, that's how they're bridging that affordability gap. And that's just not sustainable. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't know the answer to that question. It's certainly something we're thinking about on board. I think it's something that every board uh, of, of colleges and universities are thinking about today. But we just can't march along raising tuition, say, three or four percent. I think this year or next year for Santa Clara, it's going to be three and three quarters percent hmm. uh, while median income stay relatively flat. We have to really experiment with new ways of, of doing things. Hmm. Yeah. And I feel like additionally, more and more uh, people of college age are realizing that college isn't the only path. Right. There's different sorts of like trade schools and other ways to skip over college. And obviously, the, you know, a college degree still has a lot of value, right? But even even some bigger companies are starting to kind of take that requirement off of the job description and realizing that, you know, anyone can have, if you have the skills to do the job, then you should be able to to do that, right? So, um, I mean, I've, you know, read things that many colleges might close down in the next 10, 20, 30 years. So kind of what is that what, how is Santa Clara positioned in this this kind of ch- quickly changing time for higher education? Fortunately, Santa Clara is on a very solid financial footing. Unfortunately, we don't have an endowment big enough where, like Stanford, we can hire need blind. But we do have a billion-dollar endowment, and we're fully enrolled mm-hmm. uh, with the types of students we want to be here. 
Uh, so we're in a good spot and we have time, I think, to experiment. You know, I think it's pretty interesting that colleges and universities, Santa Clara, again, no exception. This really isn't particularly Santa Clara specific, Mm -hmm. teach the same way we did when we were founded, Mm -hmm. right? In 1851, Mm -hmm. you've got a professor speaking to anywhere from 10 to 30, maybe as many as 50 in some of the, you know, uh, uh, core uh, courses. That's exactly the same way that we taught when the university was founded. And I mean, I can't think of many things that we do the same way today that we did in the 1800s. And I think, you know, that's the fundamental problem. I, at Santa Clara, I think it's 65 or 70% of our costs are people. It's faculty, it's staff, people that that uh, that uh, teach here and that provide the services to the students. So I don't think we can make any materially, really address accessibility and affordability unless we address, you know, teacher productivity, mm-hmm. which means the teachers, we're going to have to figure out a way. And I think it has to do with the use of technology where the professors are able to teach more students. Mm-hmm. And when I say using technology, I don't mean, you know, using your computer to project a slide on a, you know, on, on a, uh, on a screen versus using a blackboard or an overhead projector. I really think it is, you know, using technology in a way where you take the pieces that can be done outside of the classroom Mm -hmm. and put it there so that the professor's time is focused on the labs and the discussions and the things that, you know, really make Santa Clara unique, our residential learning community. The fact you live and go to school here and it's a whole experience. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I don't mean to suggest Santa Clara is going to become an online school like University of Phoenix or something, but I do think we're going to need to experiment with new ways of teaching in an effort to increase teacher productivity Mm -hmm. to get the cost per student of a college education down. Mm -hmm. That's one piece. And then I think there are also ways, whether it's graduating through special programs in three years instead of four years to cut out a year Mm -hmm. or um, certifications, you know, whether it's in a continuing education setting to generate more revenue and to provide Uh, whether it's a young student or it's an older student that needs to get their skills updated, you know, Mm -hmm. continuing relevance, giving, given how fast things change, you know, it's a lot rarer today than it was 30 years ago to where you're, where what you learn in college will take care of you for your whole life, particularly Mm -hmm. in technology. So it's just, it's about new ways of doing things, I think. And it's about experimenting now while we have the time before we're under pressure, like some of these schools that you're reading about that are, you know, really teetering on closure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You mentioned a couple things there, like, like having teachers be or professors be more efficient. And that might mean, you know, larger class sizes, or you mentioned the three versus four years piece, which could mean taking out pieces perhaps of like the core curriculum. Right. So how do you kind of balance the, the values of, of Santa Clara, that one-on-one connection with the professor and that, that breadth in the core with, you know, there, there are plenty of changes you could make that would make it more efficient and you could perhaps have a more sustainable business model. Yeah. Well, and I think those are the things we have to look at. I mean, you know, a Jesuit education is founded on a humanities course. I don't see that changing, Mm -hmm. but you know, it's going to be, I think, adjustments versus sort of throwing everything out. I mean, Mm -hmm. and even if, you know, I talk about a, a professor teaching more students, um, I'm, I'm really seeing, the, you know, and again, I, I'm no expert in this, but really utilizing the professor or the lecturer's time for the most interactive parts of teaching, mm-hmm. standing and confronting a class and giving a lecture 
right? Kind of a one-way communication. That's an example of something I think we should experiment, you know, or those that know more than I, with taking outside of the classroom. So instead of a teacher, for example, lecturing for one period and then maybe having an interactive discussion or labs in another, Mm -hmm. they have an interactive discussion in labs in both periods and that lecture piece Mm -hmm. is, is somehow done offline. So they're teaching more students, but they're we're maintaining what really makes an in-person residential learning community work. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I say, you know, I, I am, <laughs> I'm a real estate guy. I'm not an educator, but I do know as a board member and our board and our new president and, and our new provost that will be announced shortly, you know, they are open to change and doing mm-hmm. things differently because they recognize sort of what we've just been talking about, which is we just cannot march along incrementally doing things exactly the way we have Mm -hmm. since our founding. Yeah, definitely. To kind of transition into your real estate career, um, what was it like, you know, growing up with the the family business and then working with your your father and and taking over this this huge you know real estate organization? Like, did you always know you wanted to be involved, or kind of how did you think about your personal career path? Yeah, well, certainly I uh, always felt the freedom to pursue something else other than the family business, which is is real estate development here in, in, in Silicon Valley. But, you know, I have to say during my time at Santa Clara, I never really considered anything else. It was almost a foregone conclusion. This is a family business. We need family to run it. You're the oldest male. So, you know, you're the obvious choice to do that, at least back then. And um, it's interesting, but I think our thinking has completely evolved on that. We recognize now that as a family business, you can't rely on having an interested, capable family member who's the right age, you know, and has the experience to run your business, particularly at the scale. You know, we've been fortunate. The scale of our business has increased dramatically on the 35 years or 30 more than that, 37 37 years since I graduated from Santa Clara. So um, we actually, I think it was six years ago, hired a non-family president of real estate to basically run the day-to-day operations of the real estate business. And he's done a great job. And I think it's just a recognition that it's still a family business. It's still owned by the family. Mm -hmm. But this idea of separating the ownership of the business from the management of the business Mm -hmm. is just a practical consideration that wasn't front of mind mm-hmm. when when I was going to school here. I mean, the business had four employees. It was just a family thing. Mm-hmm. And now we, we really view it as having sort of more independence from the family, certainly on the management side. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as working with my father, I think, um, you know, one thing he did very well is, is there was always plenty of room for both of us, even though my father's kind of a larger than life personality and really did the heavy lifting to build the platform, to kind of build the platform that the the business was based upon. He always provided space for me to succeed or fail. So, you know, I always felt like the business was rewarding and fulfilling because I, you know, I had a fair amount of autonomy. Mm -hmm. Although even today, and my dad's in his early 80s now, He's still very involved in sort of all the key decisions of the business. So even though I'm, you know, sneaking up on 60 here pretty quick, when you work in a family business, it is a family business. And, you know, you're it, it's not like a corporation where they, you know, by the time you're 
even, you know, in your late sixties, early seventies, it keeps getting extending. You're retired and there's a new sheriff in town and it starts over in a family business. There's that continued involvement. Really. I see my dad involving, staying involved in the business until, you know, the day he is no longer with us or, you know, is, is physically unable to do it because he, uh, it's kind of his baby and he very much enjoys it. And there's that emotional connection you have in a family business that you don't typically have in a corporation. Maybe you do if you're a founder of a corporation, but even still, often the founders, the company gets professionalized, you know, mm-hmm. sort of get, uh, you know, moved out of the management and get more, you know, they're the chief technology officer or something based on their founding expertise. So it's, uh, it is definitely different, but I've enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what have you learned about either business management or leadership from your your experience with the, the real estate organization? Well, I um, so it's interesting. My son, uh, Jeff, who's a Santa Clara graduate, graduated, uh, well, I think, 2010 or 2011. 11. We now have a policy, which I think is a good one, which we didn't do. Again, I came straight out of Santa Clara, straight into the business, never left. Uh, any family business consultant will tell you that's not a very good model and that you really want, for a whole variety of reasons, a family member to work elsewhere first. First of all, it's very good for the family member you know, and, and have them do it for a material amount of time, five or six years, which is what happened with my son, Jeff, so that they, first of all, have to go get a, quote, real job, unquote, mm-hmm. and they learn what it's like to be in an organization and to be accountable and to not have, you know, sort of any family uh, uh, support to fall back upon. And if they're capable They'll get promoted. And so I think it's really important that they know in the back of their mind, you know, I could have succeeded without the family business. Mm -hmm. I was doing fine here. My son worked at a private bank down in Los Angeles and, uh, you know, did very well, became an associate vice president, was doing business development, all sorts of stuff for them. And so I know in the back of his mind, he's like, well, I'm at the family business now, but I, you know, I know I could have made it on my own. Mm And by the same token, then, and as occurred with Jeff, when they, should they decide to come into the family business, the rest of the employees, particularly as your organization gets bigger, don't think, well, you know, the kid just got dumped here because he couldn't go get a job anywhere else. You know, they, they come from, you know, a place of employment somewhere else, which I think is really important. And uh, so that's one thing I've learned, at least about management of the family mm-hmm. business, that it's important to work somewhere else. And then I mentioned my dad created space for me. Uh, it's really important that um, you, you to the, to the extent possible, keep your distance, which has been very easy for me to do now because we hired an on, I mentioned earlier, we hired an on family president of real estate. So I'm not involved in the day to day anymore. We meet, his name is Rob Hollister. We meet with Rob once a month and kind of talk about the big picture, but I'm out of the day to day. So Jeff really has his space mm-hmm. and his name is still Sobrato. So, you know, as I say, family businesses are kind of tricky waters to navigate, you know, because the, the, per, the person that reports to, we call it an executive committee, our little committee that oversees the business or oversee Rob, you know, and Rob is managing my son, you know, you have all these sort of difficult dynamics in family business and often why family businesses fail. But um, he does have independence, which again, I think leads to uh, fulfillment and making the job rewarding. And it's a little less, little less like working for your father on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's important as well. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And what's kind of the link between the the real estate business and the philanthropy uh, arm? Yeah. You know, one of the topics we've been thinking about it is how much do we want to run the business with sort of charitable ex- objectives in mind? Mm-hmm. What we have done to date is the business is the for-profit machine. And like any business, you know, we try to, you know, maximize the return with the goal since we've long surpassed needing to run the business to sort of address our personal needs, Mm -hmm. put food on the table, so to speak. Um, You know, now we view the business as the engine that generates the fill what will ultimately be philanthropic resources for the family. My parents, for example, through estate planning have been able to leave their whole estate, their share of the business, 100% to charity. Mm -hmm. And, uh, um, And so we run the business really with an eye to generating philanthropic resources. Mm -hmm. But as an example, because these are the sort of things we're thinking about, we own, you know, thousands of apartment units Mm -hmm. rather than just lease them at market to, you know, uh, individuals at whatever rent we can get, Mm -hmm. you know, based on the market at the time, you know, should we be thinking about using some of those apartments maybe to house teachers as an Mm -hmm. example? And for certain, whether it's teachers, police, firemen, did we want to sort of set up some apartments where we would really try to support an important constituency in the community. And then if we do, that'll mean less money that'll go to the foundation for other reasons. And how do you balance the two? And we mm-hmm. frankly haven't haven't found the answer to that riddle yet. We continue to, I say, um, have them relatively siloed. The business mm-hmm. makes money that goes to charity and the charity, and the, in this case, the foundation or our individual philanthropic accounts spends it and that mm-hmm. we've sort of viewed it solid, but we do, we want to sort of mix it a mm-hmm. little bit because we do have assets that could be, they're valuable for creating, you know, uh, cash flow that mm-hmm. we can use for charity, but they can, they're also valuable in and of themselves because they're real mm-hmm. estate to be used in ways that uh, could help the community where they're mm-hmm. not being, where we're not doing that today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a really interesting point on kind of do you want your your core business to make a positive impact versus just giving money, right? Like a an oil company can you know give money to help children's education, right? But they're still an oil company, right? Whereas, um, yeah, maybe if you take the more the more socially impactful route, then you're smaller and you have a smaller impact that way. So, yeah, that's a that's an interesting point. Like, what do you think the role of businesses should be in solving like social problems? Well, yeah, it's a really interesting topic, right? As well as being advocates, right? Because that's a right. big issue today, right? And, you know, Apple is taking, you know, uh, many companies have taken, you know, stands on, I'll say, social issues as a company that really doesn't have anything to do with their core business. You know, how much it, we, we're able to sort of do the, again, do the advocacy on the, on the nonprofit side, mm-hmm as we have these separate buckets, but corporations typically don't, mm-hmm. you know, the philanthropy and, and the advocacy is sort of done within the corporation. So um, I think uh, in terms of the business, we have always tried to operate it just at its most basic level, you know, to with integrity to, you know, to do what we say we're going to do and to not do anything that we perceive to be harmful to the community. But we've also maximized profits, you know. So as an example, if someone can't pay their rent in an apartment that they're in, they get evicted mm-hmm. versus trying to understand their personal situation and maybe we would provide some support so they could stay in the apartment. You know, it's it's a really interesting issue as to where you draw that line. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And as opposed to what we have done, which is really, as I say, run things siloed where, mm-hmm. you know, we run the business as you would any business. And yet, you know, we may be providing uh, financial support through organizations like Catholic Charities mm-hmm. that are helping people stay in their homes or stay in their apartments or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, are we <laughs> kind of at cross purposes? It's just really hard to figure out. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, but it's something that, you know, as we have more time to think about these things, uh, it's kind of like the business model at Santa Clara, our little business model as a family. You know, do we want to be doing, you know, should the left hand be more coordinated with the right hand Mm -hmm. in terms of the way we approach things? Because it's really only been at the most basic level, as I say, you know, Mm -hmm. be honest with people and uh, uh, don't do anything that is blatantly bad for the environment or the community, but, you know, run it as a business not as a charity. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that like the business model is one of those things we haven't fully thought through, but I think mm-hmm. it's a really interesting, interesting uh, area. Related to that outside of real estate, the other piece of the family's for-profit a- a- asset base is a, you know, is a big basket of marketable securities, just like the university's endowment. And just like at university level, should we be, a conscious, you know, should we screen mm-hmm. the companies that we invest in as just passive investors, you know, based on ESG criteria, right? The, how they treat the environments, the, how their governance policies, their mm-hmm. social policies, and and uh, you know, have more of a social screen mm-hmm. on what we invest in passively, as opposed to our active real estate business, mm-hmm. um, uh, in. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to, to more actively screen. And, you know, that's also a really topic that's in vogue today. Mm-hmm. We've been doing it on the foundation side. So when mm-hmm. assets move to the foundation and they sit in the corpus before they're given out, that is all socially invested and mm-hmm. screened. But we haven't done it on the for-profit mm-hmm. side yet. Um, and in part because we can reposition things with no tax consequences on the on the nonprofit side, on the for-profit side, where we to recast the portfolio, we'd have a lot of tax due. Mm-hmm. And our thinking has been, well, if we lose this mm-hmm. big chunk of capital, which ultimately pretty much everything, <laughs> the way we view it is going to charity, you know, mm-hmm. the family lives, you know, we, we live comfortably, but not extravagantly. Um, it's all going to charity. Is it better to screen our portfolio and to pay a bunch of tax in the process mm-hmm. versus just move it to a screened index at the time it goes to mm-hmm. charity, you know, which is basically it, you know, the, the deaths of the various family members yeah. in large part. So, yeah, they're all interesting questions, but I think, you know, we are certainly cognizant of the fact we're doing some things that might be a bit inconsistent, you know, mm-hmm. on the for-profit side with kind of some of the things we'd like to, to achieve mm-hmm. on the nonprofit side. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And maybe I wonder if, if there are any parallels there between uh, like running that business and running Santa Clara where there's, you know, there's clear, um, like, you know, positive social impacts that are being achieved. But then there's also this kind of business and money side and there's different pieces and voices you have to listen to right so maybe considering your your role as you know chair of, of the board are are there like lessons from from business that have been useful in in your position or yeah how, how do you kind of deal with like listening to different voices and yeah well I think it's it's very similar right because the university's endowment I talked about our you know uh, stock and securities investments well you know it's 
almost identical to the university's endowment, right? And so if to achieve certain social goals, you compromise your return, well, that's less money from the endowment to support financial aid, as an example, which decreases our accessibility and affordability. So there are these trade-offs. My hope is, and I think some of the early data, because these socially screened indexes have and, and, and funds haven't been out a tremendous long time. Mm-hmm. I think that you may get a double bottom line. And in fact, particularly as the millennials invest who are more socially conscious, perhaps than their parents and the generations before them, the companies that are the best corporate citizens will ultimately have the most interest from investors purchasing their stock, those with the best business practices as we have carbon taxes and we more aggressively penalize businesses for doing the wrong thing. Although we're obviously having a little pause in that with the current administration, but assuming hopefully that that ends soon uh, and we go back to the path that we were on before the Trump administration, that those companies will be rewarded. So actually your best investments will be the best companies. Mm-hmm. So you can both sort of encourage good corporate behavior mm-hmm. and to the extent the proceeds from your investments, whether it's at Santa Clara, are going to be mm-hmm. used to fund the operations of a Jesuit Catholic university or in our case where most of it will ultimately run to charity, you you don't have to give up anything and you can achieve both goals at once. And a lot of these socially screened indexes are slightly outperforming their non-screened mm-hmm. counterparts. So I think you're beginning mm-hmm. to see that data hold true, which of course I think is a wonderful thing because then you don't have to sort of figure it out and make that right. difficult choice. You can, you can have the best of both worlds. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And then more on the the side of of the board like what's a, a challenging situation you've you faced as a board or or how do you kind of problem solve when people have differing opinions and there's different different voices and perspectives yeah well i would say in terms of challenges on the board because you know the business model we talked about is more of a longer term challenge right, in right. the short term since i've been chair of the board you know we have had a fair amount of leadership change mm-hmm. and, and and that's not unusual in higher education i think the average tenure of provost is five or six years it's mm-hmm. not forever uh there's a lot of movement but of course we've had a lot of change first of all father ring retiring mm-hmm. then Dennis Jacobs, the former provost leaving. We've had two deans of engineering. We have a search ongoing for a dean of arts and sciences. Uh, Our vice president of enrollment management is retiring. We just had a lot of leadership change. Um, You know, I am um, just delighted because, of course, we wanted to start at the top so that they could put together their own team with the selection of Father O'Brien as president of the university. I'm delighted we were we were able to maintain our Jesuit leadership without having to compromise on the skill sets we needed to use to run this university in complicated times. Of course, I'm a bit biased because I chaired the search committee, so obviously mm-hmm. I have, <laughs> you know, a dog in the hunt, so to speak, mm-hmm. and uh, am very invested in Father's success. But I really believe he has, you know, the right stuff not only to take this university to the next level, but to really build trust with the faculty, which is something that has suffered. And mm-hmm. I think he is open open-minded and is going to begin the process of trying new ways of doing things, mm-hmm. you know, because getting getting back to kind of how we open this discussion. And so, um, you know, I really think that's, that is great. How do you think about like leading the board when there's, you know, different, different opinions or when faculty are saying one thing and, you know, the, 
the donors are saying another thing and the students are saying something different. There is a lot of constituencies in a university, as you know. You just mentioned many and the alumni Mm -hmm. and so on. And so um, at the board... Um, the Board of Trustees at Santa Clara is, is 45, which is a large group to sort of decide anything. So, you know, in terms of how we make decisions, the work of the board, for the most part, is done in committees. We have committees for, you know, student affairs, uh, finance, a- uh, athletics, the physical plant, mm-hmm. development, on and on and on. And so most of the decisions, while they may get ratified at the trustees, that, that mm-hmm. debate happens in a committee of, you know, let's say 10 to 12 trustees and or outside committee members, the investment committee that runs the Mm -hmm. endowment, all those sort of things. Um, And so that's where the work of the board gets done. And I think we have a very collegial board, a very respectful board. The meetings, um, we are able to have good in-depth discussions with varying point of views Mm -hmm. and, you know, come away with a consensus decision. Mm -hmm. And I've seen that time and time again on very difficult issues. So I think we're blessed with that. But a lot of the real debate happens in the committees. And then by the time Mm -hmm. it works it up Mm -hmm. to this 45 person board, it's coming as a recommendation with sort of the rationale behind it. And so there might be some discussion about it, Mm -hmm. but, but a lot of that debate happens in committee and that's just the Mm -hmm. way we function. And I think we functioned well. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, we have a a fairly diverse board in terms of age, in terms of gender. Mm -hmm. We're always striving to have more ethnic diversity, you know, which Mm -hmm. is a challenge on every board that I'm on. And I probably chaired a dozen boards over my 35, 37 years since graduating Mm -hmm. from here. You're always trying to make sure you have a board that's, you know, reflective of the community you're serving, or Mm -hmm. in our case, our student body, which is a challenge. But I think it's a good board. And I think, you know, we, we have, at least in my tenure, been able to make the decisions necessary to, to move forward. Mm Mm-hmm. And a board that is cognizant of some of these longer term issues mm-hmm. and and willing to tackle them while we can without being in any sort of a crisis, which is the real time, mm-hmm. you know, you want to look at um, addressing some of these larger structural issues dealing with the higher education business model. Right, right. Because it's probably, I mean, that's similar to, you know, politics or running a, a business as well, right? It's kind of balancing the short and long term priorities, right? Like short term, the, the financials have to work and long term, you have to think about, you know, how is how is everyone being treated? You know, can can faculty afford to live in the area? Can students afford to attend? Right. And how do we balance all these pieces? So, yeah. Like, have you learned anything about like thinking about the short term and the long term? Yeah. Well, and, and you know, it is very easy to get caught up in the short term. I see that in business. I see it on the board. Right. We, we, we tend to deal in the here and now because you have mm-hmm. this issue mm-hmm. you know uh, our president is retiring we got to go find a new president let's go do that mm-hmm. right or um, you know we need to maintain the discount rate so that we make sure we break even so we maintain our bond rating so when we go build mm-hmm. this next building we can do it at you know a the best possible cost so there's all these short-term considerations that factor into your decisions mm-hmm. um, but we also know it is so clear that we cannot just incrementally do the same thing that I do think it's allowing the board to keep an eye on the longer term or want to think about mm-hmm. the longer term at the same time because it's just so easy to get just 
just caught up in the here and now. Mm -hmm. But we just know because every year we have this budget discussion and every year it gets a little harder to make it all work Mm. and with an eye towards it or or we make it all work and we're a little less accessible and we're a little less affordable. Mm. Mm -hmm. And every year we take a little tiny step down this path we don't Mm. want to be on and we know it and every trustee knows it. Mm. And uh, and we recognize that, you know, we're in one of the highest cost of living areas and I mentioned earlier, 65, 70% of our cost is, is human resources. And so we know we have to pay our teachers more so they can afford to live here. You know, both the adjuncts, the lecturers, and the tenured faculty or tenure track faculty. Mm-hmm. We have to, or they can't afford to live here. Mm-hmm. And they're going to go somewhere else where the cost of living is lower. So we have a cost model that's increasing incrementally. And that's mm-hmm. been the problem. You know, mm-hmm. we have incremental costs. Energy costs a little bit more. The cost of maintaining the grounds the faculty, cost of buying the food, everything incrementally increases by inflation, except Mm. unfortunately, median incomes. Mm. And that's the fundamental problem. And so we know that. And while I'm not here today with any magic solutions, we are going to be going through an update of our strategic plan. Mm. We did it 10 years ago. I think we're going to do a five-year window here. We're thinking a little just too hard to see out that far. And we are going to really spend time thinking about, you know, in this next strategic plan, what things can we do differently mm-hmm. to sort of break this cycle of incrementalism mm-hmm. uh, where everything just kind of goes up by three or 4% and we just pass it along. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you, you touched on this a little bit, bit earlier with um, talking about your, your personal philanthropy, but I saw you and you and your wife had done the giving pledge, right? And there was a line in there. You said like the most important power of wealth comes from the use of that wealth to address the world's most pressing issues. So I'm kind of curious, how do you see like philanthropy versus like government intervention? And, you know, there's there's lots of um, discussions nationally about income inequality, wealth taxes, et cetera. Right. And kind of this growing divide. So kind of how do you think about the the role of the, the private and public sectors and your, your own thoughts on those yeah, conversations? I, I sort of see philanthropy as the lab, right? Because, mm-hmm. you know, it's very hard for government to try new things because if they don't work, they get criticized for wasting money and all of that. And frankly, I just don't think the government is that creative. They have massive resources from our our tax, but uh, they're not that creative. So I really see philanthropy as the risk-taking piece Mm -hmm. of trying to make change because philanthropists can try something and if it doesn't work, they can, they chalk it up to the experience of knowing that doesn't work and they can try something else. They can be very experimental. And I think that's the role of philanthropy is to be experimental and to take risk. Uh, so that if you do have something that works, mm-hmm. you know, you have a model and you can then try scaling it up to mm-hmm. a, to a modest degree, but then you can present that in terms of policy work to the government to say, you know, here's an issue. Mm-hmm. We tried these things and we're able to demonstrate by having third party evaluations and, you know, doing it in a very professional manner that this works. Mm -hmm. And it's something now that's not as risky for you to put your tax dollars behind. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, whether that's a social program to try to get people, you know, uh, off welfare or whatever the issue may be, uh, mental health challenges, you name it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Philanthropy should be the experimenter Mm -hmm. and the risk taker and to demonstrate to the public sector, to government, 
what works and what doesn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I really think that's that's the role yeah. of philanthropy uh, today. And so if you're a philanthropist and you're sort of just doing very incremental stuff, kind of things government might do on their own, uh, you're not being effective hmm. uh, in, in your role. Hmm. Uh, and uh, I think the better foundations are very experimental uh, and really trying to pilot things. And then if they work, Put efforts into policy to try to convince the political leaders that it's something that we should try to scale and you know shift government resources from things that aren't working or haven't made much of a difference in certain problems you know kind of structural problems over many many years. Mm-hmm. Education is certainly a classic example of trying different things, um, and I can talk a little bit about a program we have at our foundation, uh, which is geared towards English language learners. That basically we piloted in a couple of school districts, and it was really focusing on bilingual education to get the Latino population of which there's an expanding achievement gap as they go through their grammar school years starting in kindergarten through fifth grade to get them to uh, grade level reading by fifth grade in non uh, where the English is not spoken as the you know uh, first language in their home or at all in many cases. We piloted in the schools. We hired actually LMU <laughs> rather than Santa Clara because they had the were most adept at evaluating these programs. And we ran it for five years, and we we uh, then had it evaluated by a third party and demonstrated that this was far more effective in terms of how the curriculum was run than doing it the way they were. Because in the schools in which we were in, we were able to basically close the achievement gap. Mm-hmm. And then we've been doing policy now as the next phase at the state level and have it in now, I forget how many schools and school districts, but it's 20 or 30 school districts. And we, the state has this thing called the English language learner roadmap that was really largely based in a lot of work our foundation had done. So um, I think that's a good example of how you can be experimental as a foundation. And had it not worked, we would have published the results just as, you know, just the same to demonstrate that, you know, this particular theory didn't work as kind of part of the background as policy is made. Yeah. Yeah. That's a cool connection. I hadn't really thought about uh, philanthropy in that way before. So yeah, thanks for sharing. Um, what do you think up to this point in your career you're most proud of? Yeah. You know, I, I thought it's an interesting question. I, I have always thought of myself as, as trying to be balanced. And if I'm proud about anything, it's that, you know, I've certainly worked hard, but I um, am very proud of my family. I have two sons who both married, one who's given me a grandchild and one on the way, uh, doing very, very well. And even though they were raised in an environment of, you know, I would say privilege as our, you know, we were having success in the business, you know, I feel very comfortable saying, you know, they can be judged, you know, as the people they become. I think of them very much, you know, in terms of their Santa Clara Jesuit education as being men of competence. They're very capable at their jobs. They're conscious and they're compassionate, you know, and they're, um, You know, I'm I'm just very proud of them both. So that was certainly one piece of my life. You know, I'm I'm proud of what we've accomplished in the business. Obviously, I didn't start it um, and we've had the wind at our back. I mean, you know, Mm -hmm. like anybody that's had great success, they'll tell you a lot of it's luck. And in Mm -hmm. our case, it's no different. You know, my father was uh, born in San Francisco. We were in Silicon Valley when things just took off. And, you know, so certainly it wouldn't have been the case if we were in the Midwest or something where the industry was in decline. So we're very fortunate. But by the same token, we've 
had to navigate some very difficult business cycles in technology. You know, there have been some great ups and some great downs, and uh, which took down many of our competitors. So I feel like we really took advantage mm-hmm. of the fortunate circumstances we had to, you know, build the business that we have today. And then, you know, now it's sort of this phase of my life and my career, you know, I'm really focused on philanthropy, both what we're doing as a foundation. And then we do our philanthropy kind of collectively through the foundation. And then we also have accounts where we do individual philanthropy. And, uh, you know, I, I guess you might say I'm really kind of just beginning that phase of really thinking strategic about my philanthropy. And I hope, you know, by the time I get to the to the end on this earth, you know, I've I've done a good job there. But that's certainly going to be the focus of, uh, you know, the, this kind of last segment of my career is, is making effective use of these philanthropic resources that we have at our disposal. Yeah. Yeah. There's a there's a couple shorter questions I like to ask sure. guests at the end of uh, each episode. So so first, uh, what is a piece of advice you give to an incoming first year student at Santa Clara? And I, and I think you can still do this, but I, I would really come in with an open mind. You know, I mean, I think that's one of the wonderful things about college and about a liberal arts education is that, you know, sort of the world is your oyster and you can really get a variety of uh, academic experiences to, to decide what you're most interested mm-hmm. in. You know, some people will say pursue your passion. I do think if you want to live in Silicon Valley, you have to be a little bit careful about that. I mean, I'm not one that just says, well, you should do whatever interests you. Mm -hmm. I do think you want to sort of strike a balance between what interests you and depending on, you know, the lifestyle you want to live and where you want to live. I think you do need to pay attention to, you know, how marketable your career is. Um, And, you know, I am surprised with the tremendous, always been surprised. And it was certainly true when I looked at my kids and my their friends, you know, how few people are interested in engineering and the sciences, but want to live in Silicon Valley, given that, you know, that's sort of the, you know, the best path to being able to do so. So I'm not suggesting everybody should become an engineer, but I do think, you know, you want to, you certainly for as much time as we spend in our careers, you want to do something that you enjoy doing, Mm -hmm. but you know, you also want to do something that will allow you to live the kind of lifestyle that you want or to live where you want. And so I think, you know, I would, I would recommend them to be open-minded and to look at, you know, all the possibilities, but I would, I would also caution them to both try to find something that they're both passionate in and that will pay the bills um, in you know for the for the for the way that they want to live and raise their kids and what have you Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are there any favorite uh, places in the world that you've traveled to? You know, I have really enjoyed traveling around the United States. That's not to say that there aren't obviously really spectacular places to visit all over the world. But one of the best things I ever did. So just by way of background, I was you know born in Palo Alto, mm-hmm. went to high school in Mountain View, went to college here at Santa Clara and have lived in Saratoga, Los Gatos my whole life. So basically, I could sort of walk on a long day to kind of every place, uh, you know, I have uh, lived here in in the Valley. So one of the things I want to do reading about how diverse the United States is and really wanting to see it myself was, you know, I have been all through the United States, you might say contiguous 
continuously, like if I just took a car and drove all around the United States, but I just did it in segments. I started here, and I got as far as the Grand Canyon and then flew back and then flew back to the Grand Canyon and kept going and went all around the United States that way, where it's one continuous path, hmm. although it was broken up into segments, flying back and forth in between renting cars and staying in all these wonderful places and really saw the United States that way and all of it. Not just the most famous cities, but the back roads like you only do when you drive across country. And uh, I really enjoyed that. And it really gave me for an appreciation on just how diverse this community Mm -hmm. country is and uh, how interesting all the different places are, Mm -hmm. you know, particularly on a trip like that. Like you might want to go to a place for this particular city for a week. But every place I went had things to recommend it. Great restaurants, great people, great things to do. And it was really fun. And it was also fun to see when you hear about the Midwest and the challenges that they're facing with industry leaving, you know, and some of the, 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 you know, circumstances that both led up to Trump's election and sort of this Mm -hmm. division we have in the country between the Democrats and the Republicans, the red and blue states, all of that. I really found it interesting to sort of, you know, be able to talk to the people and see the places that, you know, don't enjoy Silicon Valley's sort of unbridled success. They don't have Silicon Valley's housing problems. I mean, we have problems here too, traffic, housing, all the the negative aspects of having huge job growth and success. They sort of have the opposite problem. People leaving, you know, traffic and housing costs are the least of their problems. They're just trying to maintain their population and their business. Uh, so it's just interesting to sort of see, you know, what's going on in the country. Um, and uh, I really enjoyed that. Yeah. If you could send a message to every person in the United States, what would you want to say? I would say, I really think that, you know, divisiveness amongst the, you know, the population is, is a real issue. And I think one of the things that I always try to do now, I'm a Democrat and uh, I probably gathered from this conversation, not very supportive of our current leadership, but I do try to very much listen to both sides. You know, I listen to Fox News, you know, to try to figure out, you know, to, to hear the other side and to hear how people think, you know, as well as kind of all the other uh, mainstream media outlets. And uh, I think that's really important. I think part of the problem with social media, as we're seeing, is people tend to, because it's gotten so compartmentalized, just listen to things that reinforce the opinions they already have uh, and become increasingly convinced that that's just the way it is because it's all they hear. And they hang around people that think like they do. And so you have this just complete lack of ability to communicate or to really have an interest in understanding the other side and to compromise and everything that needs to happen to run this country. I mean, our government is completely dysfunctional. So my advice to everyone, if I could have one piece of advice to everyone in the country, it would be to, as difficult as it is today, to try to remain open-minded, to listen to the views of those that don't th- be exposed to and listen to the views of those that don't think like yourself uh, in an effort to come together at all levels on addressing the challenges that we have that aren't getting addressed, whether it's health care reform, immigration reform, I mean, you name it, mm-hmm. the real the environmental regulation, um, these uh, climate change, pressing issues that are facing our country and frankly facing the, the world mm-hmm. that aren't getting addressed because we can't even 
we don't understand and have taken no effort to uh, learn, you know, how those on the other side of the aisle or of a different mm-hmm. political viewpoint think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And finally, what does an ideal Saturday look like for you? Uh, an ideal Saturday for me is probably um, just having the time to myself. You know, we tend to get wrapped up in, you know, so many different things. And I'm guilty of that. You know, it's one meeting after another. So, yes, my ideal Saturday is I won't say doing nothing, Mm -hmm. but just doing things that I want to do and like to do because I'm not, you know, I don't have any commitments to anyone else. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Great. Well, thanks so much for doing this interview. Well, you're welcome. I enjoyed it. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts and now on Spotify so that you don't miss an episode. Check out the website at VoicesOfSantaClara.com for some shortened transcripts. And you can like the Facebook page and follow on Twitter. I'll see you next time.